0: Hey everyone, this is Kyle Bucket, author and retired Navy SEAL. You are listening to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast with John Hewlin.
1: Life is all about relationships and great leaders heavily invest in those relationships. On the Relationships and Revenue podcast, we talk about how to improve our most significant relationships at home so we can be better in our business relationships. We talk with experts from all over the world, representing many disciplines about the best tips and strategies to become amazing people and amazing leaders. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue podcast. This is your host, John Hewlin, as always, thrilled to have each and every one of you with me today. And as you heard from that fantastic introduction, I have the one and only Kyle Bucket with me. Kyle, how are you? I am doing fantastic. It's such a great honor to be here. So thanks for having me. You bet. You bet, man. Glad to have you here. Now, folks, as you heard in the brief introduction that Kyle gave, he is a retired Navy SEAL and he is an author. And for those of you who are watching this, not listening, I'm holding the book up right now. It's called Leadership is Overrated. Now I'm going to turn it over so I don't screw up the uh, subtitle. How the Navy SEALs and successful businesses create self-leading teams that win. We are definitely going to be getting into this book. And folks, you know me, you know, leadership is one of my big things. And so when I first heard about this book, I knew I had to get a copy. But you guys also know, that my way of doing things is I don't I never buy just one copy anymore. I always buy at least two—one for me, one to give away—and that's what that's what I do. And if books really grab me. I buy several copies and give them away all the time. So far, Kyle, I've given away four.
0: Oh, thank you, you thank bad. you. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, if you got the book, I'd love to uh, hear the feedback. So uh, please yeah. give us a review on uh, Amazon. We'd love it.
1: Oh. Definitely going to be doing that when we finish. I'm going to be getting right that on, out right there on. for everybody to see so that hopefully others will be encouraged by that and say, hey, that's a book I need to get. Or at a, at a minimum, it's like, hey, my husband would love that book or my sister is a
0: new leader. She needs to read that. Yeah, it's been interesting. Not to jump ahead too much. But it really no, has been interesting it, along man. that, along those lines, John, of, of the feedback of the individuals and types that we thought that we never thought we'd get feedback from. Wow, okay. I, I never thought this was just a, a, a principles on business. I can apply this to my family. You know, it's been it's been pretty <laughs> interesting to to see that, or I can or I can apply this to my spouse's family. <laughs> 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 yeah yeah okay I can see that. I can, good, see that I can see that for sure yeah yeah well thanks again for having me it's uh it's great to be here
1: you bet now folks I want to go a little bit into Kyle's background because I think that's going to help set us up to not only understand Kyle better but it's going to help us understand where he's gone in his life and his career because uh, to me it's kind of almost as Become like a blueprint for everything. Like one step has led to the next, has led to the next. And that's so right. these are fantastic. So, as Kyle mentioned, he is a retired US Navy SEAL, which, okay, we could just stop right there. We could spend the entire time talking about that one thing. Because, folks, I don't know how much you know about what it takes to become a US Navy SEAL. It's not just like saying, okay, I'm ready to go into the Navy. And that's just one of the choices when you want to go into the Navy. No, uh, that is super. Upper echelon elite, and Kyle, help help me understand this better. In the totality of everybody who goes into the Navy, what mm. percentage? It's even it's even really, try to become a SEAL, let alone actually
0: make it. It's really interesting. So every year, and the, these are these are average statistics. Everyone, so uh, they do they do ebb and flow a little bit, but. Every year, we have around 20,000 individuals that walk into a Navy recruiter's office or even an Army recruiter's office and say, hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And out of those 20,000, and that's globally, right? We do have Mm -hmm. recruiter offices internationally. And... Out of that 20,000, around 10,000 actually join the Navy to be a Navy SEAL. Out of that 10,000, around 2,000 to 2,500 actually make it to the doorsteps of basic underwater demolition school, BUDS, the basic part of uh, becoming a Navy SEAL, the basic training. Out of that 2,500, 2,500, we graduate around 2 to 250 a year. Wow. That's right. Oh, my God. That's right. And so uh, you can see how those numbers dwindle uh, pretty quickly. And now that's the one part about it. That's just the basic uh, part of becoming uh, qualified to continue on to becoming a Navy SEAL. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a Navy SEAL. That Mm -hmm. means you're a trainee that's graduated the basic training requirement, which is, you know, six to eight months. After that, you have advanced training. Which is, you know, another six to eight months. Now, at this point, mind you, you've already been through basic training of the military, the navy. You know, uh, then you went through, uh, you know, a preparatory school or an A school to get to uh, to before bud. So now, you at this point, you've been through advanced training. Now you're ready to get to go to a SEAL team. You're in the military for around eighteen to twenty six months, give or take how the schedules align. So now you're two years into the military. Let's call it. Then you show up to a Navy SEAL command. You're the brand new individual. And guess what? You have another year of training, wow. minimum, minimum, before you're ever on your first mission. So you're in the military for 36 to 42 months before you're ever on your very first real world mission. Wow. Yes. You got to,
1: first of all, I'm not talking about making it through the training, I'm, I'm leaving that part out of it. To go forty-two months without having ever that, been that's, on a mission—that's again, again—that's on the
0: longer scale. I mean, there have been guys okay. that have you know 24, 26 months, depend, depending on the timeline, that okay. might be you know deployed rather quickly. They showed up to a SEAL team and boom, they got went out the door, you know, immediately. But my point is, is it's anywhere between you know twenty-six to you know forty months, somewhere in there, before you're really on your first real-world mission. You got to really want to do it. You, I mean, seriously, you got to want that. And, you know, I get asked this all the time, John, is what is the secret to, you know, making it through Navy Mm -hmm. SEAL training? And really what it all boils down to is you've got to not be lying to yourself. Mm -hmm. Meaning every single individual that arrives on the doorsteps is physically prepared. They physically can make it through. In fact, Mm -hmm. I was in the bottom 25% uh, in terms of runners in my BUDS class. Like I was one of the slow guys in in mm-hmm. the run. I was definitely not the fastest guy uh, on a run. And my point of why I say that is every single individual that quit, that was faster than me on the run, they mm-hmm. physically could have made it through the program. But what they didn't do, and I did do, is I was being truthful with myself. I wasn't lying to myself that, to your point, I wanted it enough. I wanted to become a Navy SEAL enough to enable myself to get through the training and just give whatever it took. I mean, listen, in basic training, this is kind of funny. You know, it's it's months and months of being cold and sandy. Again, like I said, followed by two, three more years of, you know, training. But when you show up, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I I show up and and we're in training, right, and, one of my buddies, who looks like Chris Hemsworth playing Thor, <laughs> runs up to me and he's like, Man, I can't do this. He gives me a high five and just runs over and rings the infamous bell. Don, don. Notifying the instructors that he's quitting, right? Never to be seen or heard from again. We hadn't even started Hell Week yet. Wow. So so that night, I go to my room and i've got all the voices in my network all the voices from you know childhood or high school or the uncles or whoever right aunts or whoever it is saying hey you can't do this and then now i've got those voices i've got chris hemsworth look like right? right quitting and all of a sudden i wake up i'll never forget this dude i wake up the next morning and my leg is on fire i've got an inflamed it band Hell week's still a few weeks away, and I start realizing that I've developed an inflammation in my IT band. And so I go see the doctor, and he's like, Hey, he gives me some Motrin, and I start consuming 3,000 milligrams of Motrin a day just to get through the pain of the inflamed IT band. Mm. And more and more and more guys are quitting, and I'm just trying to get to the next evolution. Well, this is, I remember. The night before Hell Week arrives, and I've made it. I'm there, right? And uh, the experts are saying I can't do it. Thor is saying it's too hard. My leg's killing me. And I go to sleep that night thinking about all the negativity around me, getting ready for the most torturous week of my life. And I wake up the following morning, the day of Hell Week, my leg's on fire, and now I've got a new problem. I've got 102.5 degree temperature. Wow. Added to the freaking list. Right. So, my point, my point is, is like, if I'm lying to myself through all of that, I'm not going to make it through. It's not to sit here and go, oh, I'm, the, I'm the most badass guy on the world. No, I'm not. I'm not. Trust me. I know a lot, a lot more badass dudes from the Navy SEAL community. Right. My point is, is that I was never lying to myself. I wanted it that bad.
1: You know, I mean, and obviously in this particular situation that you're talking about, before you've gone out on a mission it's your life is the one that's on the line here so you know getting to that point you have to know for sure if you made it all the way through you wouldn't want to endanger the lives of your team if you're not sure at that point right you know and for the rest of us uh, uh, the stakes aren't quite as high (laughs) let's let's be honest you know if I don't make the sale, you know, I'm not worried about somebody close to me dying. I'm just right. Not. Right. So, right. You know, d- trying to help all of us keep it in perspective that the stakes were very, very high for you. I mean, individually, but then once you make
0: it, then right. it gets then it's exponentially. Level. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so, you know, we talk a lot about it. There's, you know, movies or Discovery Channel shows about, the basic part of training, but honestly, you just nailed it, John, is that's just the basic part. And honestly, you're just following direction. You're following orders. That's it's honestly the easy part. It's really mm-hmm. truly the easiest part of being a Navy SEAL because mm-hmm. you're there's no bullets flying, right? <laughs> there's, there's no point. there's no bullets flying. The explosions are fake. The explosions <laughs> are not real. Uh the impact is not real. And um, you're not, you know, in a vehicle going, you know, 75 miles an hour or jumping out of an aircraft or underwater, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you just nailed it. Um, the, although we do have accidents happen in training, we do our best to avoid them. And we're incredible at avoiding them. But it's not like the real thing. Yeah. You know, it's the easy part. And you're not well, like you're leading. You're leading. But at the same time, you're not really leading. Lives are on the line. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, and I,
1: I knew a young man when I was in high school. He was a year behind me, who became a Navy SEAL. Oh, very cool! And I remember him only in the sense that, like, he was a cross country runner. I remember that about him in high school, and that he was brilliant. I mean, he was quite intelligent. Now, that's an aspect that I don't hear a lot of people talk about. But I remember him sharing some things, even, I mean, this was, I am really dating myself right now. This was a long time ago. So he would have been telling me this. It would have been like 89, probably, when he was telling me. Yeah. And so, I mean, you can't be, you know, just some schlub who just happens to be physically gifted. I mean, you you got to have some level of intelligence to become a Navy SEAL. Am I wrong? No, that's right. That's right. And we have minimum uh, ASVAB, it's called. So one of the things that I wanted to know about related uh, to the SEALs is what's the frequency with which they would send you guys out on real missions? I'm not talking about whether the rest of us even knew you guys were out there. I'm just leaving that part out of it. Because how frequently does
0: that happen? So it. It varies, it ebbs and flows. My okay. first year, this is, a, this is always a fun one. My, my wife loves reminding me of this one. Our first year of marriage, which was uh, 2005, um, we got married in uh, July, and I deployed in late August, early September, and for the entire first year of our marriage, if you combined all the days that we were physically together and Mm -hmm. added them up, it was eight weeks. Wow. (laughs) Now uh, I've also had, you know, a a period of time where, you know, I got to spend a good amount of time with her, but um, Mm -hmm. you know, every year between 2000 and 2015, I was in a foreign country except for, wow. I think, one I think one year in there. But every year, I was in a foreign country at some point. Um, so unless you're at um, what we call a shore duty command, which is, you know, now later on in my career, I went on to run, what I like to joke is the uh, world's most elite university, which mm. is the advanced training command of the Navy SEALs where we do, you know, the sniper course, the communicator course, oh, the cool. free fall course, the jump master course, and on and on and on. That was, you know, I'm not deploying from running that command from working at the at the training command. I'm staying in, you know, San Diego uh, for you know several years, working on ensuring that the guys that were training are ready to be deployed uh, and capable and certified, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, in terms of being at a team, though, to kind of answer your question, is it ebbs and flows? But for the most part, what happens is you will do a six to, you know, eight months deployment. Uh, then you'll come home and you'll do six to eight months of what's called professional development, uh, which mm-hmm. means going to schools, like the one I was just talking about, mm-hmm. um, or an army school, or even, you know, at times maybe even a marine or Air Force school, albeit mm. rare. But um, and then you'll spend the next six to uh seven months in what we call a workup, you know. Now you're working with your new guys that just basically made it through training. You're ensuring mm. that they're ready, that they're uh, ready to work at at a unit level with the platoon, with the mm-hmm. SEAL team, and then after that, you'll go into a uh, a post workup period where you'll go through a certification period, and then you redeploy. So okay. you'll basically you would be in America, give or take, for 12 to 18 months, and then uh, redeploy again. And redeploy, gotcha. and then back in America for eighteen months, and then redeploy again, ish. Okay, twelve to eighteen months between uh, deployments. Gotcha. So when you are on
1: a mission, or or you're out, you're deployed. So now, when lasts, you're, yeah, when you're last so about a year, that, also
0: that also six six to eight months is the main focus of what we try to do nowadays, for okay. sure. I've done you know year long deployments. Um, and, it, and it's rough, right? It's really rough on the families, on, sure. the, uh, on the kids, on the spouses. It's very challenging. But when you're on that deployment, that also ebb, ebb and flows, right? I've had periods where we didn't do a mission for, you know, a month um, mm. or a month, a month and a half. And we would have what we call like spin-ups, right? You're spinning up based on great intelligence. And then the intelligence mm-hmm. goes dead um, um. and, you know, you, and you spin down and you don't actually execute on the mission. I've also had periods of time. In fact, I had this one, I'll never forget it. It was 2006. I was in uh, Iraq uh, and we were targeting um, at at an intense level. And the war was, you know, the conflict was very, very dynamic. Uh, We were all busy. And I had a 124-hour period where I went on four completely separate missions in one 24-hour period. Whoa. So... Yeah, oh yeah, which was nuts, right? Um and so which is I mean still to this day, you know, 2006 on um, um, what 13 years, you know, 17 years later, still to this day, that was, you know, my personal record for four completely different target intel packages uh for four completely different missions um in a 24 hour period it was pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. So, um my point of why I say all that is it can it can vary it can vary. And then it also depends on theater, depends on conflict. It depends on timing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's such a wide variation. Okay. Yeah. Why did you become a SEAL? You know, I wanted to join the Army, actually. Okay. Uh, I grew up in uh, New York, just north, of, just north of the New York City, across the river from West Point Military Academy. Um, mm-hmm. And as a kid, I would go to West Point and watch hockey games, basketball mm-hmm. games, you know. Because uh, that's what we had, kind of around us, that was cheaper than going down into the city and watching the Rangers or the Jets or the Giants, sure. etc. Right, and yeah. so uh, um, I knew that, and I saw that, and I had—you'll appreciate this, John—I had Chuck Norris films. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, right. So I had okay. Chuck Norris, and uh, and I wanted to be Chuck Norris, and so my senior year of high school, my dad had um, quit his job, actually, and was deciding to go back to school. I'm the nope. oldest of five kids. I'm the oldest of five kids. My dad's in a career transition. My mom's working at a, the small private school that we attended with basically no pay. Our, yeah. annual, our annual family income combined was $11,000. Didn't wow. have a lot of options. We were scraping by. I didn't have a lot of options. I honestly, I'm, now I'm kind of acting as the, house nanny. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. I'm dying. Uh, I love my parents, but I'm like, I got to get out of here. I didn't have a lot of options afforded to me. And so my dad actually told me, Hey, you love the water. You love the ocean, rivers, lakes, streams, anything. You just like water. You like being around water. You should mm-hmm. check out this program called the Navy Seals. And I was like, I don't I didn't even know what it was. This is the nineties. There wasn't a lot. Like I had, you know, I had the, um, the one movie with, um, uh, what's his name from Hot Shots, Hot Shots. Charlie Sheen. Uh, Charlie Sheen, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I had, yeah, yeah, I had that movie, and that was pretty much it. And so I was like, whoa, and I read a book, and I was like, that's incredible. I want to do that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, fast forward, <laughs> I'm in my senior year of high school. It's the morning of my 18th birthday, and I'm sitting on the Navy rec- I skip school. I'm sitting on the Navy recruiter's office at 801 a.m. They open the door and I sign the dotted line. I'm like wow. Get me out of here. Yeah. So wow. Okay. Everyone's got their own story. But uh for me, I just wanted to, I just I wanted to go serve the country in an elite elite manner and in a mm-hmm. maritime environment. Now I always joke because I love the water and I love surfing. I love being in the ocean. I love the water. And uh I join. In the late 90s, and then 9-11 happens, and all I end up seeing is the desert. Desert.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mm. So talk to us a little bit about this whole notion of, well, I'm thinking about high performance is one of the things I'm thinking about. Because when I think Navy SEAL, that is something that comes to mind. Uh, I mean, forgetting the fact that I actually knew someone who had become a SEAL, I'm talking about just the what I have learned about the Navy SEALs in general. When when I hear that term "high performance," the, I think of a few things. I think of like a Formula One kind of racing, and I think of upper echelon, elite Olympic type athletes, and I think of Navy SEALs. I yeah. do. That's what I think of. So. Is that a term, first of all, that you think applies to the Navy SEALs? And if it does,
0: in what ways does it apply? I mean, I mean we're the, the cream of the crop, right? We're the tip of the spear, right? Yeah. Everyone, when you, when you talk to, and, and I, gotta, I gotta caveat this, right? Like I love every single military branch. I love them all. I'm forever grateful. Like the Marines have saved my life multiple times. I love working with the army, and I can go on and on and on. But when you hear in your network, someone talk about an entity, and they go, hey, these Israeli Special Forces, or the Marine Recon, or the Green Berets, or whoever, what's the following sentence, right?
1: Yeah. It's,
0: it's that comparative to to our community. and And the reason is, I believe, is because of our training, right? Mm. Our training is so intense. It's just incredibly intense. Um, We walked through, you know, a moment ago, the attrition rates uh, and what it takes. And it boils down to, I think, you know, each one of us has this this resilience and this adaptability that's innate within each one of us that's reinforced, reinforced very, I wanna be very clear about this, reinforced Mm. by what I was mentioning earlier, which is, we're not lying to ourselves. Yes. We're very honest with ourselves. So we learn, and this is like the, the moment, the, the aha moment, we're like, great. Right? Each one of us learn that we need to understand how to lead and motivate ourselves each and every day. Yeah. So we're resilient and we adapt to it when we're in the basic training, when we're in the crap, you know, when yeah. it sucks, when we don't have sleep for a week. We learn how to lead and motivate ourselves each and every day. Now, granted, we got we have instructors yelling at orders at us, but you know, I know if I talk about this when we consult with um with companies, is how many of us have had bosses or bad bosses telling you yeah. what to do, right? <laughs> yeah. In the end, it's about your self reassurance that really gets you through it, right? Mm-hmm. Not and and for us as as students in buds. It's about that self-reassurance, that resiliency, that adaptability that gets you through it, not the instructors. The instructors are not getting you through it, It, right? I was just with a group uh, like two weeks ago, right? Uh, It was a sales group of a large um, insurance organization. And I I was talking to them like, remember that time when a tough customer says no 10 different times, Mm -hmm. right? This is the sales organization of a large group. I'm like, you know, remember that what, what happens, what motivates you to ask for that sale the 11th time? Mm. How did you think on your feet and persevere, not giving up till they finally said yes, right? It's, they adapted, they were resilient, they adapted to the situation. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing in, you know, Navy SEAL training, like you have to adapt, you have to be resilient. And then you just remind yourself like, Hey, this is, this is why I'm doing this.
1: All right, I want to take this a slightly different direction for just a minute because it kind of hit me when you were talking about it when you were speaking to that sales force. Sure. I'm thinking in terms of a much younger generation. One of the, well, there's no better way. I, I can't say it any different than this. One of the complaints that I get from a lot of friends of mine who are hiring younger. When I say younger, I'm talking about you know, 18 to 25 in that range. I get it. I get it. They, there's, resilience does, it's not there. They've never been through anything, so they don't know how to be resilient. They've had everything given to them. So, okay, I'm going to hop down off of my soapbox now Mm -hmm. because somebody else needs the wood. But the point I'm trying to make is that how do you help, People like those friends of mine are like, John, I don't know what to do with these kids. Because the first sign, and I mean, barely even a sign that something might not be exactly perfectly right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they throw up their hands, they give up, and it says a lot of them quit. I this mean, is, like, leave.
0: And it's like, I don't know what to do with that. This is one of the most common questions that we get asked. Okay. I love this question. And... 90% of the time, people are not going to like my answer. Oh, man, I can't wait to hear it now. Because <laughs> guess what? That 18 to 22-year-old, guess where we create Navy SEALs from? Huh? Good point. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You're not getting 18, a 30-year-old coming in there, there. So We don't just hire, we don't go out and hire a 40-year-old Navy SEAL. <laughs> no. And go, hey, we need a sniper. Let's go to on Indeed and hire a Navy SEAL. My point is we create them. We mm-hmm. create them internally. Mm-hmm. And we get asked this all the time. And I go, well, what's your training program look like? And well, mm-hmm. we have a, a three-day in-doc for new employees. And I go, okay, that, that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. We gotta start somewhere. right? Um, and then what happens after that? Well, then, then I start complaining about resiliency and adaptability. And I go, okay, <laughs> there we go. All right, there it is. Yeah. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah, Now let's break that down. What are you trying to get out of this individual? And, and what is the problem? And, and why, are this, why is this individual not truly motivated? Because yeah. we talk about this all the time, right? The top 10 motivators surveyed time and time again, it continually come, comes back, especially over the last three or four years. And we reference referenced it in the book is guess what number one is? And hey, it's not money. Spoiler (laughs) alert, it's not money. Why are, what are people motivated by? And the number one time and time again, and it's growing. And I think number one's starting to take over quite a bit of um, the market share in terms of motivation and adaptability. Meaning like number one might've been 10% of the top 10. Mm -hmm. It might be now worth like 20% of the weighted value. Does that make sense? Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and it's and it's recognition and appreciation. Mm. Recognition and appreciation, right? Yeah. Um, and that's growing, right? Everyone wants that pat on the back. And it is very challenging for leaders these days, for managers these days, to understand how to do that, how to give mm. recognition and appreciation. And so there's des- this desire. And that's a good thing. Uh, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a great thing. It's as the country is evolving, as we're reaching new heights uh, in our country, um, you know, wealth is becoming, you know, bigger and larger every day as we know it. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's not, I need, I need just bread and water is my point. Mm -hmm. Now we're evolving as a society saying, Hey, I need to be appreciated. I need to be recognized as an individual. And so we focus on, hey, enabling those managers and those leaders, hey, how can you build a program or a process of just going, hey, Jane, you know, I really do appreciate all your hard work. Hey, mm-hmm. John, I really appreciate your hard work. You're you're doing a great job. Let's also just focus on tweaking this. But honestly, you're doing a great job. You're mm-hmm. doing a phenomenal job. And so my point of that question really is, you know, it comes back to like, hey, what, are, what is the culture that you've created within your organization and what is the, the magnetism within that culture that's drawing in your new talent that you're now complaining about? <laughs> because you hired them. Right. And now you're complaining about them. Mm. Right. Oh yeah. So, you know, it's, hey, what kind of training did you spend on that individual? And what kind of process do you have to feed into, you know, the top 10 motivators and drivers for individuals in today's in today's world, in today's workforce?
1: OK, so if that is indeed the case, that the number one motivator is the the recognition sort of thing, would you say there's a, a difference? Now, let me back up for a minute. I've long believed that the way you do that best is by knowing your people and that requires effort i mean you have to you have to learn folks you have to get to know them because if let's say that there's Gage. 10 people on 10 people on your team well it's very unlikely that all 10 of them are going to think exactly the same way let alone be motivated in exactly the right. same ways right. and so or how you need to disseminate information to those 10 people because there's, there's the one person that needs two minutes from you every day, has to have the face-to-face with the boss, and needs to talk to you. And then whatever you ask that person to do, they're good. There's the other person who actually really doesn't want the FaceTime. It's like, send me an email, tell me what you want done, I'll get it done. And there's all different kinds of other people sure. in between there. The same thing, I would imagine, for motivation for those kind of folks, and the way we ways we recognize them. So I'm I'm building all this up to something. Is there a difference? And if there's not should there be a difference in how we recognize people on our teams, meaning people that we lead as a manager versus
0: someone who's more C suite and leads those types of folks. So so, if I'm understanding the question correctly, let, I'm going to repeat back to you: It's Please. saying, "Hey, if I'm if I'm the CEO and I've got eight, six to eight directs, C-suite directs, mm-hmm. right? How do I empower and delegate uh, and trust them to then now lead their six to eight managers each?" That that's
1: that's part of the question. I guess the other part of the question is, as the CEO. How I'm leading the C-suite and how I'm recognizing them, will there be more similarities in how, say, that group motivates and recognizes their people? Or will there be differences in how you do that?
0: Well, honestly, we, um, we have a saying around uh, our consultancy group, Culture Force. Yes. Uh, which is we try to work with our clients to. There's this buzzword that's been you know creeping in over the last I don't know five to six years in the HR world, which is I'm sure you've heard it. We hire for culture fit. Yeah, yeah. And I always roll my eyes. I'm like, okay, you, you're you're looking for a piece of the puzzle to just kind of put in there. And I we roll our eyes because we we hire for culture improvement. Oh, okay. We, we want to elevate the culture. We want Mm. to improve the culture, not just put another cog in the wheel that has to fit the mold of what we're trying to do. Right. We want to elevate it and take it to the next level. And so, the point of why I'm just bringing that up is because for the group, and I love this question, John. This is such a great question. In fact, probably one of the first times I've ever been asked it on an interview or a pod. Hmm. Um, Yeah. And it is how do I empower? How do I trust and empower and delegate a different style of leadership than me to <laughs> then to yeah. then be a good leader for a different type, type of leadership or, or motivator than them, mm-hmm. right? So how do I take the individual underneath me who's completely different than my style, help them then lead someone who maybe is my style or is mm. different than at least different than them, right? Right. And it's really about empowerment, right? It comes back to, at the end of the day, being engaged and understanding, hey, what capability does, I'm just going to use generic names just to, to point, please. Say it's, say it's you at the top and then Jane's underneath you and then I'm underneath Jane, right? Okay. So it's saying, hey, John, John has to ensure I meet Jane where she's at. And how do you do that? By being engaged by understanding what capabilities she has to now lead Kyle. Knowing Kyle is an alpha male, you know, aggressive, on, on a dis-profile, I'm a big D to I, right? <laughs> right? I'm dominant with an I, and say she's the exact opposite of, you know, me. Maybe she's, you know, a CS somewhere down there. Yeah. Hey, Hey, Jane, what can I do to help you, to empower you, uh, to now lead Kyle, this dominant you know influencer underneath you, what tools do you need? How mm. can I support you? And really, and goes back to that eighteen to twenty two year old question that we were just asking, what training are you giving those leaders to now lead different types of motivations and different types of personalities? Mm. Okay, right? How are yeah. you empowering that leader? and most importantly, how are you empowering that leader publicly? It really takes trust, right? It right. takes trust. So John needs to empower it. And every, every situation is different. Every situation is different. I'm just throwing up a generic example. Of yeah, John yeah. needs to empower Jane so that Kyle knows, hey, John's given Jane all the authority and the power and he trusts her. So I need to now trust Jane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And okay, and John is elevating Jane, maybe one day to even replace him. And yeah. so now how can I? And now what it all boils down to is how I now, now can Kyle come in to achieve my motivations, my drivers, to then help Jane and her goals. And simultaneously, maybe now Jane is gonna one day elevate herself and elevate me. Mm, okay right? Yeah, and we talk that. about that. You, you've read our book, you know, the first chapter is called Kill the Leader, right? We focus on <laughs> taking out, the you know, taking out in training. And I want to be very clear to the listener. Uh, <laughs> ta- <laughs> taking out the leader in a training scenario to enable, um, you know, to see what can happen when that happens. We work with companies. It's actually quite fun, John. You know uh, what we do? We, uh, we start planning with the boss or the manager or whoever for, you know, maybe, a, depending on where they are on the on the spectrum of this, maybe a two to three day vacation, but we don't tell anyone it's coming. Oh, okay. Only that individual knows. And then the morning of the vacation, we turn off his or her email and we just make them unreachable. And, wow. we let, we, and then we say, hey, hey, everyone, this person's fine. They're doing just fine. They're on vacation. And mm-hmm. then we'll sit there and we'll analyze how it impacts the team. And in those hmm. moments we get to really watch what happens uh to an organization or a department when the boss is, you know, on a on a, a beach somewhere enjoying a mai tai. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be dramatic, it can be fun is my point. Yeah, yeah, for
1: sure. You know, we we will get to this question later because it's it's one that I think is important uh that I ask all of my guests. The question is this, what characteristics or traits make up a great leader? So I had a guest on several months ago. I had a a retired two-star admiral on the show, Mike Manazer, uh, call, Na- cool. call sign Nasty. Nasty. Yeah, wow. An amazing guy who has also written a book on leadership. It's a fantastic book. Uh, and Mike is a super nice guy. But when I asked him that question, I mean, of all the things he could have told me, It's not that it shocked me what he said, but the fact that he was the one telling me, I was like, okay, I need to pay attention to this. For him, the number one trait of a great leader was removing barriers. He talked about, I mean, and he went into great detail about his time of being in the Navy, and that one of the things that he did more than anything else as a leader in the Navy in order to help his people he would come back to them time and time again and say, how can I help? What can I do for you? They would tell him, and for him, it was a matter of removing barriers so they could do the thing, whatever the thing was. Is that something, first of all, that you noticed in your time in the Navy and then subsequently after that in creating culture force?
0: You know, I think it's a great symptom or a great character trait uh, okay. that makes a phenomenal leader. But if you were to ask me, and, and, and I agree with him, that makes a phenomenal leader that's always engaged. It goes back to being engaged and helping and empowering those individuals and then teaching them how to also, you know, remove the barriers for themselves, et cetera. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and that's incredible. And I, and I agree with him. However, if you were to ask me, what is the number one thing that makes a great leader? Yeah, I would. I would answer someone who is always looking to replace themselves. Always, yeah. because what what is that doing? That means you're truly engaged with your next tier. You're truly growing them. You're training them. You're empathetic to their needs. You're understanding what they are they are motivated by. What's driving them. What's mm-hmm. the problems? What's their barriers? What's their barriers to ev- evolving into you, yeah. right? What's their barriers to elevating themselves up to your position? And time and time again, when we show a group or an organization on how to do that, what happens? Here's what always happens. That aha moment clicks in when you go, oh wow, now I can focus on vision, strategy, the next mm-hmm. horizon. A new product, new innovation, and on and on and on, right? And so yeah. when you replace yourself, we see this time and time again, right? What happens when the great startup has a great founder that immediately starts replacing himself? They scale, they scale fast, right? Mm. Because he's not trying to be an HR, the CHRO, he's not trying to do all of the business development by himself. He's not trying to run all of logistics or global supply chain or operations by himself or that the, or we see the converse, right? The startup that just wants to, and the CEO founder is way in the weeds on the tech. Yeah. Okay. Right. And he can't even focus on, Hey dude, we got to get payroll out. Yeah. Yeah. But if I just, if I just get this line of code into Mm -hmm. the, into the, into the code, it'll be so much better. Mm Mm-hmm. But my, so you get where I'm going with this, right? Is is yeah. I believe the leaders that can focus on, and, it, and I want to be very clear, this doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. I'm not sure. saying replace yourself in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it takes time. Um, and depending on the level, you know, it could take, you know, a decade. I've seen a good, a world-class leader replace himself over, over a 12 year period, mm. you know? yeah. Um, and so my point is, is that those individuals that are, that are focused on elevating and bringing up the next level of leadership along mm-hmm. with them and replacing them, that to me is the number one. Gotcha,
1: gotcha. And saying the same thing that you are in a slightly different way, one of the things to me that makes a great leader is someone who is creating more leaders. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what you're saying. I just said it in a slightly different way. I think mostly because that helps me in my brain understand things. So, um, because leaders that create followers, anybody can do that. That's not hard to do. If you have a compelling vision, I mean, just barely compelling, you can get some followers. That's not hard but helping somebody see the potential that's in them, drawing that out and helping to set them up for success not just today, but 5, 10, 20 years from now, that to me is a fantastic leader. It's like I saw something in you that you didn't know was there. Not not in a bragging kind of way, but it's like when you meet somebody like that that has that ability that sees that in other people, when I first saw that, the very first person I saw do that to me, I actually was jealous. I was like, "Man, I wish I could do that for the people." Well, I can now. It's a skill that can be learned. Is that something that that you all at Culture Force is that something that you're teaching these clients of yours how to do that?
0: That's exactly right. Nice, you nailed, you nailed it. Love, you love that. Nailed it. You
1: nailed it. I love that. You know? Okay. I, I, I have to ask about this, and we're, we're digging more into the book now, folks, right here. Again, Leadership is Overrated, fantastic book, which, by the way, you co-authored with Chris Mefford. Correct. Who, by the way, I am working on getting on the show. So nice. We're going to get Chris on the show. That would um, be great. I, at first, I had thought about having you guys together, but I actually like the idea of having you guys separate. Yeah, no, he'll and the do different it. approaches that you guys take to the book and how you do things—it's it's, it's yeah. fascinating to me because you come from completely different
0: worlds. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, actually, that's how this it came to be. And I, back, I was still on. Uh, I was getting ready to retire, but uh, I was still technically on active duty at the time when I when Chris and I sat down one day and I said, "You know, you've got some incredible experience with what you did with Dave Ramsey and the Dave Ramsey organization." It'd be really cool to have uh your experience in you know corporate America to a degree. I mean granted that when Chris was there, well, they weren't corporate yet <laughs> right, um, right but uh you know the vernacular of corporate America you can contrast that with the vernacular of the special forces community mm-hmm. and so that's how the that's how the book kind of came to be was hey, let's have this kind of di- a dialogue back and forth between you know, the special forces and then, you know, private sector. Yeah. And how did you guys meet? Uh, we literally met at a, uh, business leaders breakfast. Uh, he walked in five minutes late. The last uh seat in the uh room was next to me, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just, this was like 2017, uh, when we met and, um, we just kicked it off. We just started, uh, just chatting and then one thing led to another. A couple of years later, we uh, decided to write a book together. Okay, okay. What was that like? That process of it's writing very, together? You know, it's really interesting. Um, we built our book kind of mm-hmm. like a business, right? So we had Chris mm-hmm. and I, we had another writer, we had an analyst, we had a researcher, we had an editor. Uh, okay. Then we we put this all together, shopped it around. Um, then we hired an agent right? Mm-hmm. And then we mm-hmm. signed with, you know, Harper, a big, a big publisher. And so we built yeah. this kind of like a business from the beginning. For each author, there's really three models that you can go after, which is, you know, self-publish. Uh, you can do this new and growing trend, which is a hybrid model where you, mm-hmm. you know, you pay a, a smaller publisher to help you self-publish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can, you know, what we did, which was signed with a big publisher. So it's really yeah. interesting. And I always like to joke, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the author N.T. Wright. N. T. Wright, N. Yes, N. Wright. Have, actually.
1: Oh, you have? Oh, okay, oh great. very so, familiar.
0: Yes. Oh, great. Very so N.T. N. Wright, for the listeners, if you're not, um, N.T. Wright's books are, you know, three inches thick. Oh um, yeah, they are um, massive.
1: And they're so, not for the faint of heart
0: at all. They not not very... for not for how thick they are, but for the content. The content. The content. Think about a three-inch thick book full of, you know, uh content that is very uh wordy, very cerebral, very oh, you'll deep. need a dictionary. You're gonna need a dictionary. And so <laughs> he uh is a co-author, not on our book, but a co-author at Harper with us. And our senior <laughs> editor, when we signed on. I found out that uh, Mickey was the senior editor of N.T. Wright, Oh, so, wow! but it doesn't stop there. His other author or estate, shall I say, was none other than C.S. Lewis. Oh, wow. So, so we found ourselves sandwiched between N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis. And I'm like, hey, Mickey, congratulations. I am your dumbest author. <laughs> oh wow yeah how, how do you follow up those guys yeah yeah so we were blessed we were blessed to have an incredible team is my point oh gosh yeah that's
1: that's yeah. so cool thanks for tuning in to part one of my conversation with kyle buckett i really hope you enjoyed it and if you did be on the lookout for part two because it's coming to you very very soon so thanks again for tuning in today and we'll see you guys next time bye everybody